This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. AP journalists have now seen more evidence of killings and torture in Bucha, a suburb of Ukraine's capital. As investigations get underway, we get more details from AP correspondent Ben Thomas. Dozens of bodies are scattered around Bucha, six charred and piled together out in the open near an empty playground. It's unclear who they were or under what circumstances they were killed, but one had a gunshot to the head, another smaller than the others, likely a child, according to the head of police for the Kiev region. It's horrible. Interior Minister Denis Monaskirsky. You see, it's just six bodies here, and uh, that house, uh, you can see maybe three, and that house, it's maybe one body. It's shot, they, they was shot uh, and burned after it. The chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court at The Hague opened an investigation a month ago into possible war crimes in Ukraine. I'm Ben Thomas. The U.S. and its European allies are expected or saying that they will impose stiff new sanctions Wednesday, including a ban on new investments in Russia. This is in retaliation for Russia's war crimes in Ukraine, according to the White House. That joint action also includes toughened sanctions on Russia's financial institutions and government-owned enterprises and more sanctions on Russian government officials and their family members. The U.S. Treasury Department also moved to block any Russian government debt payments with U.S. dollars from accounts at U.S. financial institutions. And the U.S. Defense Department is sending Ukraine an additional $100 million worth of military equipment, including Javelin anti-armor systems. This is VOA News. An international rights group says that Mali's army and foreign soldiers suspected to be Russian recently killed an estimated 300 men. Some of them suspected Islamist uh, extremist fighters, but most of them were civilians in Amura and central Mali. Human Rights Watch says it is the worst single atrocity reported in Mali's 10-year armed conflict against Islamic extremists. The group said it's interviewed 27 witnesses and other experts about those killings. Amora, a town of about 10,000 residents uh, and an administrative area of central Mali, has since uh, 2015 been at the center of conflict with extremist rebels and has seen widespread violence, abuses by all sides, and the displacement of large numbers of civilians. U.S. Republicans have now blocked a Democratic attempt to begin Senate debate on a $10 billion COVID-19 compromise. AP correspondent Norman Hall. A day after Democratic and GOP bargainers reached agreement on providing the money for treatments, vaccine, and testing, the Democratic move to push the measure past a procedural hurdle failed 52 to 47. All 50 Republicans opposed the move, leaving Democrats 13 votes short of the 60 they needed to prevail. Republicans say they will only support the measure if Democrats agree to votes on an amendment preventing President Joe Biden from lifting Trump-era curbs on migrants entering the U.S. Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer want Congress to approve the pandemic bill before lawmakers leave in days for a two-week recess. Norman Hall, Washington. The COVID-19 outbreak in China's largest metropolis of Shanghai remains extremely grim. 
amid an ongoing lockdown confining around 26 million people to their homes, according to a city official. The director of Shanghai's working group on epidemic control was quoted by state media as saying that the outbreak in the city was still running at a high level. China has sent more than 10,000 health workers from around the country to aid the city, including 2,000 from the military and mass testing residents, some of whom have been locked down for weeks. Most of eastern Shanghai, which was supposed to reopen last Friday, remained locked down along with the western half of the city. Recapping our top story, AP journalists now have seen more evidence of uh, killings and torture in Bucha, which is a suburb of Ukraine's capital, as investigations get underway. And now the U.S. and European allies say that they will impose stiff penalties and sanctions, including a ban on new investments in Russia in retaliation for the war crimes. More at VOANews.com via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Wednesday, April 6th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the European Commission proposes new sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. We will impose an import ban on coal from Russia worth 4 billion euros per year. This will cut another important revenue source for Russia. UN urges Sri Lankan government to engage in peaceful dialogue to quell discontent over economic crisis. UN Human Rights Spokeswoman Liz Thrussell says there are worrying signs that the government is losing patience with the largely peaceful demonstrations taking place across the country. And Shanghai city officials say the COVID-19 outbreak in China's largest metropolis remains, quote, extremely grim, unquote. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The European Commission proposed on Tuesday new sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. The head of the European Union's executive, Ursula von der Leyen, said further pressure was needed. The proposals entailed an EU ban on imports of coal from Russia worth 4 billion euros per year and a full transaction ban on four key Russian banks, including the country's second largest VTB. The EU will also ban Russian vessels and Russian-operated vessels from accessing EU ports, though there will be exemptions for agricultural and food products, humanitarian aid and energy. This fifth package has six pillars. First, we will impose an import ban on coal from Russia worth 4 billion euros per year. This will cut another important revenue source for Russia. Second, a full transaction bank on four key Russian banks, among them VTB, the second largest Russian bank. These four banks, which we now totally cut off from the markets, represent 23% of market share in the Russian banking sector. This will further weaken Russia's financial system. Third, a ban on Russian vessels and Russian-operated vessels from accessing EU ports. Certain exemptions will cover essentials such as agriculture and food products, humanitarian aid, as well as energy. Additionally, we will propose a ban on Russian and Belarusian road transport operators. This ban will drastically limit the options for Russian industry to obtain key goods. Fourth, further targeted export bans worth 10 billion euros in areas in which Russia is vulnerable, 
This includes, for example, quantum computers and advanced semiconductors, but also sensitive machinery and transportation equipment. With this, we will continue to degrade Russia's technological base and industrial capacity. Fifth, specific new import bans worth 5.5 billion euros to cut the money stream of Russia and its oligarchs on products from wood to salmon, from seafood to liquor. Sixth, we take a number of very targeted measures, such as a general EU ban on participation of Russian companies in public procurement in member states, or an exclusion of all financial support, being in European and national to Russian public bodies, because European tax money should not go to Russia in whatever shape or form. Finally, we are also proposing further listings of individuals. Which we are working on additional sanctions, including on oil imports, and we are reflecting on some of the ideas presented by the member states, such as taxes or specific payment channels, such as an escrow account. That's head of the European Union's executive, Asla van der Leyen. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused the West on Tuesday of trying to derail negotiations between Russia and Ukraine by fueling, quote, hysteria, unquote, over alleged war crimes by Moscow's forces. Kiev and the West say there is evidence, including images and witness testimony gathered by Reuters and other media organizations, that Russia committed war crimes in the Ukraine town of Busha. Moscow denies the charge and has called the allegations, quote, a monstrous forgery, unquote. While much of the world remains focused on the war in Ukraine, more than one in four people in Africa, some 346 million, are facing a severe food crisis with millions of families skipping meals every day. The reason for the crisis can be partially traced to rising food and fuel costs after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But ICRC spokesman Abdi Karim Mohammed in Nairobi tells VOA Carol Van Dam many other factors have contributed to the alarming hunger situation. There is the issue of the conflict that is cutting across the continent, which uh, displaces people and causes other contributes to the food security. There's the issue of uh, displacements. There's the issue of climatic shocks, like the droughts we have in Somalia, the harsh conditions we have in the Sahel. But now also what we are noticing as the ICRC is that there's this uh, hike in fuel and uh, food prices as a result of the conflict. And wheat is particularly a big export for Russia and the Ukraine it comes through Egypt to parts like Ethiopia. And yes, so they'll feel the trouble for that. Are people actually dying from hunger in Africa right now? Actually, this number is not uh, new, and that's why we are trying to draw attention to this issue, because once you're told one in four people, yes, one in four people who face severe food insecurity. Now, what does severe food insecurity mean? It means that these people are likely to run out of food, they're likely to experience hunger, and at the extreme have gone days without food. So basically, their health and their well-being is being compromised. And does the severe food crisis that we're talking about include people who are starving to death? Yes, it does. It does include them. And uh, the situation is really bad. And you can see like in places like Somalia, there's people have lost their ways to their livelihoods. We're talking animals, farms are empty. So they just go and are displaced close to, they move close to the towns where they can receive humanitarian aid.
Right now, as the ICRC, you can see three, almost a, the bulk of our work is life-saving. It means give these people money where they are markets or give them food so that they can feed their families. Aside from Somalia, which countries are the hardest hit? Ethiopia is up there. Kenya is also suffering from the drought effects. Burkina Faso has seen an unprecedented rise in displacements in the last couple of months. We have Nigeria, which is also affected. We have Mauritania. So it's from West Africa. That's the Sahel region. We have the Central Africa and we have the East Africa and the Horn. You mentioned the other factors besides the war in, in Ukraine, like flooding and drought. What are there some of the other reasons that the severe food crisis is happening now? One of the key concerns, especially for us as the ICPC, because we work in places where we see a lot of conflict happening, it's access. So I'll give you an example. Like if fighting breaks out, you have people who are under different uh, under con- areas that are controlled by different um, groups or authorities and we can't get to them and support them. So they tend to just be displaced and come to town. So this is an, a big issue. On Saturday, we had, uh, we had we received some good news that we were able to take our first uh, aid convoy to Tigray. So we were able to take like a uh, number of trucks there with over 200 tons of food and medical supplies. So you've had those access challenges now for over a year in the Tigray regions. What are some of the other places where they're, they're hard to reach, people who are the most vulnerable? Somalia is one of them. Uh, access is always, an, always a challenge because there are some areas that are, people are just cut off from uh, humanitarian aid at all. And this is not only food, it also touches on health. What needs to happen to scale up the efforts to fight the food crisis? We've seen that the needs are overwhelming. So initially we had we were planning to target like 6.5 million people to address the crisis. So this is food, cash and livelihood support. But now we are adding 2.8 million more people. Now, this is a drop in the ocean. Uh, if you look at this is across the 10 countries. So we need all humanitarian actors. We need the governments. We need the different armed groups. We need the donors. We need everyone to actually focus on this problem. That's Abdi Karim Mohammed, spokesperson for the ICRC, speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam from Nairobi, Kenya. The UN Human Rights Office is urging the Sri Lankan government to engage in peace or dialogue, not violence, to quell rising discontent over the country's economic crisis. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Tensions have been rising since Sri Lanka announced a state of emergency and other restrictions a few days ago. The action was taken to rein in mass gatherings of people protesting the country's worst economic crisis in decades. UN Human Rights Spokeswoman Liz Thrussell says there are worrying signs that the government is losing patience with the largely peaceful demonstrations taking place across the country. She says people are demanding action to stem the rising cost of living, shortages of fuel and other essential commodities. We have seen brutality in the past and and I understand there were a number of arrests, dozens of arrests, 50 or so people were detained um, in response to one of the protests and and there was, as I said, reports of excessive and unwarranted police violence against protesters. Thrussell says there's concern that the state of emergency will be used to stifle dissent and people's right to freedom of expression and assembly. She says using emergency powers to prevent people from expressing grievances through peaceful protests would violate international human rights law. She says United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, previously has voiced concern about repressive measures taken by the government in response to criticism of its policies. 
As the High Commissioner noted in her recent report to the Human Rights Council in February, the drift towards militarization and the weakening of institutional checks and balances in Sri Lanka have affected the state's ability to effectively tackle the economic crisis and ensure the realization of the economic, social and cultural rights of all people in Sri Lanka. Drossel says the High Commissioner believes meaningful dialogue between the government and political and civic critics would offer solutions to the economic and political crisis facing the country. She adds the Human Rights Office will be closely watching developments. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, a city official says the COVID-19 outbreak in China's largest metropolis of Shanghai remains, quote, extremely grim, unquote, amid an ongoing lockdown confining 26 million people to their homes. China has sent more than 10,000 health workers from around the country to aid the city, including 2,000 from the military and its mass-testing residents, some of whom have been locked down for weeks. Most of eastern Shanghai, which was supposed to reopen last Friday, remains locked down along with the western half of the city. Concern is growing about the potential economic impact on China's financial capital, also a major shipping and manufacturing center. Shanghai recorded another 13,354 cases on Monday, and vast majority of them asymptomatic. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. An alleged former militia leader in Sudan's Darfur region has pleaded not guilty to 31 charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The trial of the militia leader known as Ali Kashab is the first at the International Criminal Court to deal with the Darfur conflict. From Paris, Lisa Bryant has more for VOA. Pursuant to Article 8.2c, subparagraph 1. Wearing a blue suit, Ali Mohammed Ali Abdelrahman sat with folded arms as he listened to a long list of atrocities he allegedly participated in nearly two decades ago. Speaking here through a translator, he denied the charges against him. I reject all of these charges. I am innocent of all of these charges. I, I am not accused of any of these charges. International Criminal Court Prosecutor Karim Khan offered a very different take. He outlined brutalities supposedly committed by Abdel Rahman and other alleged members of Sudan's feared Janjaweed militia in 2003 and 2004. Rapes against women and girls, children being targeted and attacked and abducted, men and boys, amongst others, being executed and killed, homes being wantonly destroyed, people fleeing with nothing, for many their lives never to be the same again. This is the first trial at the Hague Base Criminal Court dealing with the Darfur conflict, which the United Nations says killed roughly 300,000 people and displaced some 2.5 million others. It's also the first trial resulting from a UN Security Council referral to the ICC. This is a really important moment. Elise Kepler is Associate International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. It's not the end. Uh, in fact, it's really just a beginning. But we have not seen any meaningful accountability for crimes in Darfur. And 
victims have been clamoring to see justice, that that justice is such an important uh, step. Also known as Ali Kusheib, Abdel Rahman was considered a senior Janjaweed member. The militia group was fighting non-Arab rebels who had launched a revolt complaining of discrimination. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Some internally displaced persons or IDPs living in Sudan Darfur region have welcomed the opening of the trial of Ali Mohammed Ali Abd al-Rahman, known as Ali Kushab, at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The IDPs described the trial as a positive move forward, achieving justice for loved ones killed during the conflict in Darfur. Some IDPs said other individuals charged with war crimes or genocide should be brought to the court, including former President Omar al-Bashir. Mohamed Atit reports for VOA from Khartoum. Some IDPs living in Kalma Kam in Sudan's West Darfur state are expressing their joy over the start of Ali Koshep's trial today in The Hague, saying justice will finally be served. Speaking to this program from inside the Kam in Darfur, Kam leader Yaqub Ahmed says Koshep's trial has given IDPs and refugees hope and trust in the ICC. When justice is served, nobody will try to take the law into his own hands. This has given us hope that justice will finally be served. We have trust in the ICC and we have been following up with them since day one. Another IDP, Hanan Hassan Khatir from Kalma Camp, expressed her happiness after seeing Kusheb in the Hague courtroom. Khatir says she lost her husband in 2003, leaving her with six children. She says her oldest son was killed during the conflict in 2017. I do not believe my ears that such a trial would have been carried out. But today I am excited that Ali Koshab has finally been tried in the court of law. This man has committed a lot of mass killing, ethnic cleansing. Some of us have been raped publicly in front of our fathers and husbands. Our hope is that all others involved in committing crimes against our people in Darfur should be taken to ICC. Khatir says even though trying Kusheb is a big step forward, there is a need to charge all alleged perpetrators in a court of law for crimes committed against civilians. Adam Rijal is the spokesperson for the Coordination Office of IDPs and Refugees in Darfur. Rijal says despite the ongoing court proceedings in The Hague, IDPs across Darfur continue to experience attack, killings and other forms of atrocities. I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the discovery of bodies of civilians allegedly killed by Russian troops in Ukraine has sparked global outrage and calls for trials of the perpetrators, including Russian President Vladimir Putin. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Encounter. Next up, our periodic U.S. politics update with veteran analysts John Fortier and Jim Kessler. They spar over U.S. policy to support Ukraine, isolate and punish Russia, the historic confirmation of the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court, and headwinds for Democrats in the run-up to the November midterm elections. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. This is Science in a Minute. 
The National Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institutes of Health is reporting that researchers have created the first complete gapless sequence of a human genome. A gapless sequence is valuable in genetic research because for the first time, researchers will have access to a complete sequence of the roughly 3 billion bases or letters of our DNA. According to a press release from the NHGRI, up until now, researchers had access to about 92% of the human genome. Adam Filippi, Ph.D., who co-chairs the Telomere to Telomere Consortium that led the research group, says, quote, truly finishing the human genome sequence was like putting on a new pair of glasses. Now we can clearly see everything. We are one step closer to understanding what it all means, end quote. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hello, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and VOA's Carol Van Dam for a special edition of Press Conference USA. Our guest is Jan Eglin, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He offers his perspective and solutions on some of the world's most complex humanitarian crises, including the mounting crisis in Ukraine. Join us for PC USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinedorf in washington wishing you a wonderful day An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On March 21st, Secretary of State Antony Blinken declared that the Burmese military government committed genocide against the Rohingya minority. There is such a thing as a path to genocide. That's the groundwork for genocide. The fact that it is laid far in advance over years, even decades, through a steady process of dehumanization and demonization, said Secretary Blinken. The Rohingya, who had been an integral part of Burma's society for generations, saw their rights, saw their citizenship methodically stripped away. In 1962, the Burmese military staged a coup and soon thereafter began to demonize and persecute Rohingya and other ethnic minorities. The government stripped Rohingya of their citizenship, conducted campaigns of terror, rape and murder against them, and destroyed their communities, then forced them into camps for the displaced.
There were strong parallels between events in Burma that historically led to genocide elsewhere, said Secretary Blinken. Rohingya were compared to fleas, to thorns, to an invasive species, just as Tutsis were compared to cockroaches and Jews to rats and parasites. And while today's determination of genocide crimes against humanity is focused on Rohingya, it's also important to recognize that for decades, the Burmese military has committed killings, rape and other atrocities against members of other ethnic and religious minority groups. Reports of these abuses are widespread. They're well documented. They've occurred in states across Burma. The United States strongly supports the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar as it collects, preserves, and analyzes evidence of the most serious international crimes in Burma. Even as we lay the foundation for future accountability, we're also working to stop the military's ongoing atrocities, press for the release of all those unjustly detained, support the people of Burma as they strive to put the country back on the track to democracy, said Secretary Blinken. The United States also continues to provide significant support to help meet the humanitarian needs of Rohingya and all affected by their persecution. Nearly $1.6 billion since 2017 for everything from shelter and education, specialized mental health and psychosocial support for the victims of trauma. The case files are growing. The independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar alone has collected more than 1.5 million items of evidence and information, including witness testimonies, documents, messages, photos, videos, geospatial imagery, social media pages, said Secretary Blinken. The day will come when those responsible for these appalling acts will have to answer for them. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Washington, bam, bam, boom.